Aloha and welcome back to the Healing Laughter Podcast, the show where we talk about all things narcissistic abuse. I'm your host, Katie Utterback. I'm a certified narcissistic abuse recovery coach at Elevated Aura, an international holistic coaching firm specializing in helping survivors of toxic relationships learn self-love and how to live their best life. Today on the show, I want to explore the myth of the good girl or the good boy and how that depiction of ourselves as being either good or bad can keep us stuck in abusive cycles and keep us addicted to toxic people. Let me explain what I mean. So for most of my life, and just a caveat with me even saying that, because I didn't realize how much of my childhood I didn't remember until I started inner child healing work. If you've never done any kind of inner child healing work, it's seemingly pretty simple. You're asked to do a variety of exercises and journal prompts. All of this is related to normal developmental milestones. And this is something that you do in order to help you reconnect to that time in your life. It's a total mindfuck though. So for example, one way to reconnect with yourself as an infant, if you were neglected by your caregivers, is to drink from a baby bottle. And then you're supposed to describe what that experience was like for you. Another example is to try eating baby foods and to crawl around on the floor, to eat with your hands, and to try new things like going to an arcade if that was something that you always wanted to do. I'm definitely oversimplifying it for the sake of time, but inner child healing is a huge ordeal. There's so many moving parts. There's so many ages that you can be quote-unquote, stuck in, and there's so many triggers that you may not even know are triggers. So inner child healing is essentially finding where these thorny roots are and digging them out so that we're not constantly getting pricked by these emotional thorns. It's exhausting work, but it's also incredibly freeing. And the thing that probably helped me the most so far on my journey recovering from narcissistic abuse, that and uh, radical acceptance, But before I started doing inner child healing, I noticed that my mom's voice in particular was always in my head. The truth is, it sounded like me at first. I thought the voice was mine. But once I started trying to ask myself questions like, what was your favorite food when you were little? What were your favorite things to do? I started realizing none of the answers were my own. They were basically like memorized scripts and the answers that kept coming up, especially for my favorite food, that was my sister's favorite food. And I had a really hard time figuring out where my mom's ideas and dreams for me ended and where my own dreams started. I also noticed that whenever I would try to talk about my life with my mother-in-law, you know, trying to get to know somebody, almost every sentence I started began with my mom and I. It was so cringe. So part of what makes narcissistic abuse so traumatic is just how insidious it is in nature. There's a huge portion of time spent in recovery just getting someone to realize that they were abused or that somebody in their life is abusive. And a lot of people don't view emotional abuse or verbal abuse the same way that they view physical or sexual abuse. So you have another layer of survivors of emotional abuse, psychological abuse. They end up staying in toxic situations a lot longer because someone somewhere along the line was able to wrongfully convince them that they're just hypersensitive or too emotional. 
And top of that, I think a lot of people truly underestimate the power of gaslighting, myself included. Um, you know, just looking at my own life from a bird's eye view, I had a job. I was allowed to leave the house. I was even encouraged to have friends and get married one day. I had clothes. My parents let me live with them. I had food. I had water. They told me they loved me. So from the outside to the average person, I it, I mean, it looked like every decision that I was making was my own, that I was in a normal, healthy, happy family. But the truth, my truth, is that I was far from being in control of my life, so far from it that I didn't even realize that I was living a life that was not mine. I was in this good girl trap that had been set by the narcissist to keep me, one, compliant, two, isolated, three, in a state of fawning. And if you're not familiar with fawning, that is actually my fear response. So the most, the two most common fear responses that we hear about are fight or flight. Well, there's actually at least two more types of fear responses. There's freeze or fawn. So fawning is just like, I'll do whatever you want. Just please don't hurt me. Freezing is like, if I don't move, can, like, can they see me? Will they forget that I'm here? Will they just move on? So I had become so enmeshed with my mother that I was living a life that was far from my own. I wanted her love and approval so desperately that I often swallowed what I really wanted to do, to say, to wear. I was fawning. I wanted my mom to view me as a good girl because that's what she told me she had always hoped for me. Mom would always point things out that were good and bad to me because we didn't have boundaries. And I remember when my mom agreed to be a chaperone for an overnight trip to a zoo when I was in fourth grade. My friends and their moms were on the bus too, so we formed a little pod in the back of the bus, and my mom hated it. I remember having to move to the front of the bus away from all of my friends because my mom said she was going to get sick with a migraine if she sat in the back. And my mom's migraines were pretty famous. They were the reason she was never able to go to the beach, to the pool, or on the boat with us growing up, my favorite places. And since she was there to bond with me on this field trip, I had to move to the front too. I remember on that bus ride to the zoo, my mom kept complaining to me in my ear about one of my girlfriends. And I was really shocked by the one that she targeted because of all of my friends, Heidi was probably the one that would check all of my mother's good girl boxes. Yet my mom was so upset that Heidi was laughing and having fun on the bus. She just kept whispering to me how Heidi's mom was a saint and she was so glad that I didn't behave like that. I wasn't exactly sure what like that meant, but I knew that my mother did not approve. I also knew that I wanted to be in the back of the bus with my friends. I don't really remember much of that trip, but I do remember not sleeping next to my friends that night. My mom had me sleep next to her over in a corner, and once the bus got back to the elementary school the next day, my mom pretended that I wasn't feeling well, and she took me with her to get a pizza. So secret pizza dates were kind of her thing, and it started with her father. So mom would sometimes say, uh, she would tell us that she would stay up late when she was little and would share pizza with her pedophile father when he would come home after his second shift or second job. Now, she didn't describe him as a pedophile father, but obviously I'm going to put that in every chance I can. Now, there are numerous other stories I could share with you as well, and I most likely will in future podcasts. But the 
point that I'm trying to make is somewhere in my life, my mom's voice had turned into my inner critic. So everything I did and didn't do somehow represented her, not just me. And I was okay doing whatever would make my mom happy because if my mom was happy, she seemed to approve of me, to like me, to love me. So to stay in mom's good graces, her voice had become my inner critic. Essentially, everything I did or didn't do went through the what would mom say part of my brain before I, Katie, got to even consider what I wanted to do. Not only that, but if I made a mistake or if I fell, I would hear her words in my head like, Spiller or you're such a klutz. I don't remember how old I was when I got the incentive, but my mom told me that if I remained a good girl throughout high school, which meant no premarital sex, do not get pregnant, do not smoke, don't drink, don't do any drugs, then I would be rewarded with a chance to travel anywhere I wanted around the globe. I wasn't exactly sure how I would ever be able to prove any of these things to her, nor did I know if this was a common practice to bribe your kids to stay sober and single with a singular spring break trip, but I had always dreamed of going to Hawaii, so I was all in. To make things even blurrier, my mom would share things with me about how she had been raised, which further led me to believe that my mom really wanted the best for me. I mean, she wasn't calling me a whore like her mom called her. She let me get my ears pierced, and she didn't charge me for milk with dinner. She didn't charge me to go to a Catholic school or force me to go to a Catholic school. She didn't charge me to go to driver's education. But that's the thing about abusers and toxic people people who are struggling with malignant personality disorders. They're really, really good at telling you what they know you need to hear in order to stay under their spell just a little bit longer. Tying this Hawaii trip with this idea of being a good girl led me to adopt the same kind of black and white thinking that a lot of disordered people have, where things are either good or bad. There's really no gray area. So you can imagine I wasn't exactly popular in high school. I had to demonize so many things just to try and keep my mother's approval, which you guys, my high school is also like a whole topic on its own. But anyway, this good girl pull kept going. So after the Hawaii reward trip, it became about college. You know, we'll help you with college because we want you to get the best education, but there's no underage drinking, premarital sex, yada, yada, yada. Now, I thought this was fair until, until I learned, or more like my therapist gave me validation, permission, to accept this idea that once a child turns 18, their life, their sex life especially, is none of their parents' business. I was nearly 30 when my mom asked if I was a virgin. I was engaged to my husband at the time, and she was drilling me about my sex life at a group dinner. A group dinner where the other attendees were strangers who had spent the weekend at the same professional workshop my father had been attending. I know what you're wondering. Why was I there? Well, somehow my parents had convinced me to let them borrow my car and drive to LA for the weekend. But since they knew that I would be carless and we lived thousands of miles away from one another at this point, I got looped into driving them to LA and taking three days off of work just to sit in a small hotel room with my mom in between driving my dad to and from this conference. Oh, and we had to take extra trips to and from if he wanted a nap. I thought that I was doing everything right. 
to make my parents happy. I was sacrificing vacation time, my car, what I wanted to do, what I wanted to say, what I wanted to wear. Yet I was constantly being criticized, told I needed to do better, more, faster, smarter, thinner. When I first started to separate myself from my family of origin, I felt like a villain. It was the first time in my life where I really didn't know if I was if what I was doing was good or evil. I, mean, I kept journaling about my decisions, but a clear answer didn't come, at least not in a dramatic way. The more and more I made decisions that were authentic to myself, I felt the line between good and bad getting fuzzier and fuzzier. I kept telling myself that people who ghost their parents and just disappear are bad, that I should be trying to work things out to help them better understand how they hurt me. At the same time, I had a therapist who kept reminding me that Abusers who drive their children to suicide or self-harm are not good either. And while they may have had a traumatic childhood too, that was no excuse for their treatment of me. This was actually one of my greatest aha moments to date. When my therapist asked me how I had gotten to therapy. It confused me at first. I drove. She clarified her question was more so, why did I think that I needed to meet with a trauma therapist? I had shared my story about my wedding and how my sister threw me out of the house after berating me for several minutes while my parents just looked on. And then it hit me. My why was that I wanted an outsider's perspective to help me cut through the bullshit. And as my therapist reminded me, my parents, my siblings, the rest of my family of origin, they all had that same opportunity. They could have called a therapist, gotten an outsider's perspective, but they didn't want to. I had been cast as the black sheep scapegoat in the family and no one wanted me out of that role. No one even wanted me to know I had been cast in a role. And as any good trauma therapist will remind you, we are not born conditioned to believe that we are good or bad or that anyone else is for that matter. It's really only as we grow up, the shame that we experience from family, friends, teachers, other kids, coaches, religious teachers, music teachers, it all chips away at us feeling safe to be who we are. And those of us who grow up in toxic situations, we cling to this idea of being a good girl or a good boy because it gives us hope that we are lovable, likable, and valued. It gives us a false sense of security that there are rules to the narcissist's ever-changing games. But in reality, all it does when we latch on to this idea that we are good is it keeps us stuck. It keeps us from exploring the world because we're already deciding what is good, what is bad, without actually knowing, without experiencing it firsthand. It also doesn't leave any room for gray areas, which is such a mistake because life and being a human is complicated. Having premarital sex, smoking weed, having a drink or two, these are not bad things, nor are you a bad person if you do any or all of these things. You're also not automatically a good person if you're a virgin who's never smoked weed or had a sip to drink. That's our show for today. Remember, you deserve healing from narcissistic abuse because you are fucking worth it and I love you. If you have any questions about narcissistic abuse or the recovery journey that you would like to have answered on this show, please send an email to katie at elevatedaura.com 
or you can submit a voice message on the Healing Laughter Anchor podcast homepage.